2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Jay. I'm one of the show's producers. We're doing a different theme each week here on New Books Network until we launch our new season in September. The theme this week is the politics of expertise, which really is right at the heart of who we are as a show. Today's episode does work as a standalone, but I'd like to also recommend the one we published yesterday on New Books Network, which was called Derailed, The Crisis of Forensic Expertise. Gordon did a really good essay at the start, which really summarizes our thinking around the question of what is an expert or what is an intellectual? So if you haven't already, you should totally go check that out. Today, though, we follow on from that story with another story, a story about a mother wrongfully convicted of killing her child, and about one of the most notorious examples of forensic science being misused, Dr. Charles Smith. He was the head forensic pathologist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, and he performed over a thousand child autopsies. More on that coming up in this episode. It's called Pathological, The Work of Dr. Charles Smith. And if you're enjoying these episodes in particular, we'd love it if you went to our show, Darts and Letters, in your podcast app and hit follow or subscribe.
3: Hi folks, Gordon here. I thought I should give you a heads up about this episode. It deals with particularly sensitive material, including children in distress. Depending on where you're at, you may or may not want to listen. And I don't think this will be right for children. Okay, on with the show. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. We continue our series on the crisis in forensic expertise. Last episode, you heard the story of Brandon Mayfield. Mayfield was accused of being involved in the 2004 Madrid train bombings. As you know, the case exposed serious issues in fingerprint identification, and it started this period of reckoning in the forensic sciences. If you didn't already know that, well, maybe you should rewind the tape. Go to episode 16, Derailed, The Crisis in Forensic Expertise. Today we continue our series, but we have a completely different story one that is much more troubling and much closer to home. In Toronto, Ontario, there was a place called the Hospital for Sick Children. There used to be a man that worked there named Dr. Charles Smith. Charles was the head of Pediatric Forensic Pathology. That means he performed autopsies on deceased children. The work that he did there damaged many people's lives. One of those was Tammy Markhard. This is Tammy's story. And also the story of her son, Kenneth. Kenneth was born with some serious health issues. He had frequent seizures. But the story begins before that. It begins when Tammy met her boyfriend, Rick. They met at the Canadian National Exhibition.
2: I met Rick the end of summer of 1988. It was mm-hmm. actually on a dare from my best friend, it was the last day of the CNE. I was going there and she dared me to put my, my name and phone number in some guy's pocket and make him call me. (laughs) So at that time I was the kid that would always take any kind of a dare. I didn't care what the dare was. I would do it. So by the end of the day, I was on the TTC bus heading home and a car cut the bus off, causing the bus to slam its brakes on. I didn't know it at the time, but, Rick happened to be sitting in front of me. And when the bus hit the brakes, I reached into his pocket and I put my f- name and phone number in his pocket. And well, he kind of looked at me and I said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, your cigarettes were falling out of your pocket. You don't want to lose those. And then as he was getting off of the bus, I yelled at him and I said, I put my phone number in your pocket. Give it to your buddy. Because he was with a guy. Um, <laughs> I ended up getting off two stops later. By the time I got home, the phone was ringing. I answered and it was Rick. And he said his buddy didn't want to call. He was too scared. So he called for him. I went over to their place. His buddy was trying to be like really showing off, like flexing his muscles and exercising and taking his shirt off. And it's like, yeah, whatever. This is just, (laughs) no, not interested. (laughs) <laughs> and rick just seemed to be sitting there laid back and i i just turned i looked at him we started just shooting the shit and yeah. i looked into his eyes and well the rest was history <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's amazing that's so bold you you you're not scared at all to slide the number in his pocket
2: <laughs> and no i wasn't it was a <laughs> dare and my best friend dared me to do it and i by golly, I was doing it, and I did it. <laughs> <laughs> because Rick was um, what you'd call a B-boy back then. And his buddy was a rocker. And I was a rocker. And, well, Rick just wasn't really my type.
3: How old were you at the time when you when you met him?
2: I was 16.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, 16. We were on again, off again. Over the years. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I was 18 when I became pregnant with Kenneth. I joined the pregnancy and aftercare program through the Children's Aid, which was a voluntary program. I was still going to high school at the time. And my guidance counselor had told me about the program. I had been told numerous times, oh, well, you were abused as a child. You're going to be an abuser. And it was like, no, I'm not. And well, everyone's like, well, no, that's just the statistics. You were abused. Wow. You're going to. And it's kind of, well, you have to do something. Like you, it's going to happen. And it's like, well, no, I'm going to make it not happen, right? And what can I do to prevent what everyone's telling me is, no matter what, it's going to happen, right?
3: I just can't believe that they would tell you that's such an awful thing to hear the statistics say this, therefore, this is what's going to happen.
2: I think that's why nowadays it really pisses me off when people go, oh, well, the statistics say. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't care about statistics.
3: Do you remember the first seizure that Kenneth had? What what was that
2: like? He was in his playpen with toys and that in his playpen. I was cleaning and I turned because I heard thumping noises and I didn't know what was going on. I turned and he was just shaking. I, I didn't know what the hell was happening. I started taking all his toys out. I was scared to move them because I'd heard so many different stories that when someone's going through this, you put this in their mouth, you Clear everything away from them, you make sure they're not hurting, and you make sure they can't hurt themselves or somebody else, and put a pillow under their head and a million different things ran through my head and i I, I did end up getting him to the hospital, and that's when they had been say had said that it was it must have been a fibril seizure, but to see it was the most terrifying, most million things running through my head of what to do, what not to do. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? At first they were saying he was just having fibro seizures. And uh, I can't remember exactly what point, but uh, they did eventually say it was epilepsy and they put him on uh, phenobarbital. I ended up moving to Oshawa. That's where my sister had lived. And she brought me to her pediatrician and uh, that pediatrician put him on uh, Dilantin. Basically saying that uh, the phenobarbital is way too much for a child of that age and that wasn't right. He should not have been put on it. Basically the way it had been described to me was like uh to give a child of that age phenobarbital is like giving them heroin and then you just take them off that's the way it was explained to me and it's like oh my god no like that's shouldn't doctors know that already what was kenneth
3: like as a kid i mean so far we've only really just talked about like health problems and stuff like stuff that's tough but I mean there must have been good times with Kenneth too
2: oh yeah oh yeah once he was walking I was taking him outside in the rain and we'd jump in puddles and play he loved to play dinky cars Uh, he always made like a long train and with all the cars all lined up everywhere Uh, he loved his Tonka truck his favorite cartoon at the time was uh, Darkwing Duck and I used to joke around with him and go, hey D.W., how you doing? Because Kenneth's full name is Kenneth Donald Wynn, so D.W.
3: That's really sweet. I've never seen that show. I'll have to watch it.
2: Oh, you gotta watch at least one episode now. (laughs) (laughs)
3: I want to ask you about that that night, that night that um, you found Kenneth in, in October, was it? Will you tell me about that night?
2: Okay. As I said in the beginning, Rick and I were on again, off again throughout the years. Um, during one of our off times, he had gotten another girl pregnant. When him and I got back together just before we got married... He told me that uh, about her and that he gotten her pregnant and whatnot, and I said, "Okay, that's that's not a problem, one way or another. You'll you'll have the baby in your life. That that child will know you." And uh, she did babysit. I gave her my phone number, and I had told her that when when you go to the hospital and you're ready to deliver. Let me know, and I will make sure that he is at least at the hospital. One way or another, Mm -hmm. I'll be sure he's there. Well, she had called that morning to say that she was in labor. So I woke Rick up. I gave him my bank card and the passcode, and I said, Look, she's in labor. Go. The last thing he had said to Kenneth was, goodbye which was not a normal thing that we ever said we goodbye is an eternal thing it's till we meet again or see you later it was never goodbye Uh, for whatever reason he happened to use goodbye on that day I was trying to put him down for a nap and he kept no nap mommy no nap so I I sat on the couch. I laid him on my lap and I put the blanket on him and I le- I got him to go to sleep. So I put him in the spare bed in our bedroom. And then I went out to the living room because I was expecting Rick to call to let me know, was it a boy? Was it a girl? What do you have? How are things? Did you make it? You know, I had a million questions for him too. And I ended up falling asleep on the couch. One of those things I used to beat myself up over quite a bit. Uh, uh, When I woke up, um, instead of another thing I beat myself up over, I had to walk past the bedroom door to go to the bathroom. All I had to do was just Look in the bedroom door instead of going to the bathroom first. Instead, I just walked straight to the bathroom. And that's one of those. I wish I had stopped. uh, the coulda, shoulda, haves That if I had done this, maybe he'd still be alive. If I had just stopped in that moment, maybe... I could have seen something. Maybe I could have stopped it. Maybe, like, again, I could turn my brain a million ways upside down from Sunday, and it's not going to change it. Kenneth and I would play a game with his teddy bear. I would put the teddy bear over my face, and I'd go, Kenneth, and I'd take it off, and he'd laugh, and he'd grab the teddy bear, and He'd go, Mommy, into the teddy bear's belly and then pull it off his face and we'd laugh. And it was a game that we played. So when I was sitting on the toilet and I heard a muffled, Mommy, I didn't think anything of it. He's got his teddy bear with him. So he's probably just playing the game. So I let him know, mm-hmm. Look, Mommy's in the bathroom. You're going to have to wait. Just stay in bed because, mm-hmm. uh, he had had a fractured femur and he had just gotten out of the hospital days before. So I had to be very cautious of that. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want him to get out of the bed on his own. Uh When I was done, I walked into the bedroom. And this is a hard part. I will do my best to get through it. Uh I walked into the bedroom, he was, his head was at the foot of the bed, the sheets were twisted, because I, I always made hospital corners, and he used to flip in his sleep, so I didn't think anything of it, like I'd, but then when I walked in, he was twisted up in the sheets. I struggled to, to free him. At one point, I remember thinking, if I just get the scissors, I can cut him out. And I thought, well, what if I cut him? And I, I, I managed to get him, get him out. Before I got him out, the last thing I heard, was mom Sorry it's it's been a long time okay. since I've since I've talked about it. matter what I do I can't there's I can't turn back the hands of time I can't I can't change it and I feel like all I can do is try to help that other people have more support more Mm -hmm. I don't know what like yes I I may have had the supports around me but I didn't feel I could reach out. I struggled with with asking for help. I wanted to take his place. I wanted to take his pain. And I would rather me take it and destroy myself than to have him go down there. Uh I just... Growing up, I did a lot of swimming lessons. I did CPR classes. I thought I knew exactly what I'd have to do. But in that moment, I went totally blank. So I picked him up, ran to the living room, called 911, told them what was happening. And I couldn't remember for the life of me not one thing of CPR. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I think now I understand why doctors can't work on their own kids. (laughs) Makes sense now. Yeah. I remember them saying that uh, they had gotten him stabilized and they were transporting him to Sick Kids Hospital. My question after that was how am I getting there? Remember, I gave Rick my bank card. So mm-hmm. I had no money, no bank card. I didn't drive, I still don't drive police had said they would drive me, and we'd follow the ambulance. So I thought, okay, I'll, 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 that, if that's how I'm getting there, that's how I'm getting there." Well, the ambulance went off to sick kids. The police pulled me into the station. They questioned me, and I just kept saying, I want to be at the hospital. I want to be with my son, I want to be with my son what's the quickest way we can damn well do this and get it over with so I can goddamn well be there with my son. I need to get there. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing a video statement. When all that part was done, I walked out into the waiting room and there was Rick standing there. I remember collapsing in his arms in the backseat of the police car. I remember wanting to tell him everything. And he just kept saying, don't say a word, don't say a word, don't say a word. Because, well, he's had interactions with police. And he just kept saying, don't say a word.
3: We return to Tammy's story after the break. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. When we last left Tammy, she was at the hospital, and the doctors were treating Kenneth.
2: He was uh, hooked up to life support. I remember at one point the nurses saying, you need to go sleep, you need to sleep. I thought it was a dream that the, the nurse had woke me up and said, Kenneth had taken a turn for the worse. And I guess I didn't really wake up. But it Um, actually ended up being... The nurse really was trying to wake me up to say he had taken a turn for the worst, And I wasn't... Realized that it wasn't a dream and she really was saying this to me. Uh, I remember... Sitting in the room with Kenneth. uh, Holding his hand trying to do a play-by-play of the baseball game that was on the TV. He liked the Mm -hmm. Toronto Blue Jays, by the way. It took a lot for me to finally watch a baseball game again after that. baseball cap being on Kenneth's head and at one point I guess somebody had moved the hat because I saw the stitches from the autopsy on his forehead I think I ran away at that point because it really just it it, it put me in a really awful place It's basically an imprint that's now in my mind for the rest of my life and it's gruesome and it's, it's something I can't, I can't put behind me, I can't. uh...
3: When does it become clear to you that they may be thinking about you as a suspect? What, What happens?
2: Uh, I believe it was when they uh, came to my house and uh, wanted to do a polygraph test. I think that's when it started to hit me that they think it was me. They think I've done something. I remember them asking if I had hurt Kenneth. Well, by this time... I felt like I didn't save him so yeah I did because I I couldn't remember my CPR so obviously yeah I had to have hurt him like I I do come into this feeling a lot of my own guilt Mm. I did not do the action of what uh, Smith had said which I if memory serves me correctly um, he said it was non-accidental asphyxiation, uh, could have been a plastic bag, possibly a garment bag, um, a hand over nose and or mouth or another soft object, such as a pillow. Um, it, it was just, didn't take into consideration his epilepsy or his medication, Or his asthma. You just said, oh well, a sheet is porous and you can breathe through it. I had been offered, we'll drop it down to manslaughter if you plead guilty and we'll only give you five years. And I basically told them to go fuck themselves. I'm not going to say I did something just to do less time because I thought, well, I didn't do it. And, well, I've got lawyers and they're going to prove that I didn't do this. And the justice is is going to prove in court that, okay, well, okay, let's look at all this. And no, she didn't do it. One lawyer said, take the plea. And the other lawyer said, there's not enough evidence. But it didn't matter to me. I I was dead set against taking their plea.
3: I can't imagine losing a son. But to add to that, that you have these people saying you did it. Like, how does that feel?
2: Uh, It's like, uh, have you ever done something as a kid and... You tell a parent or an adult something, and they're like, Oh, no, no, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying, even though mm-hmm. you know what you're saying is true. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that, but on a bigger scale. Because now I don't feel like I just have to prove to one adult in my life. Now I have 12 jury members, a judge. And however many other people, now I have to get them to see the truth. Not one doctor would go against Smith because they classified him as the god of pathology. And it was like, how come I have nobody on my defense team? Like, shouldn't I have somebody here to... Help me fight this battle besides just my lawyers. The Crown's got all these people. And I just felt like, I don't know what, because I was uh, a legal aid case that nobody wanted to help somebody on legal aid. And over the years, looking at the system, it just seems like if you got money, then you can just pay your way through the courts.
3: I read something that one of your future lawyers, I guess James Lockyer, said. He said that you were an easy target for Dr. Smith. Why do you think you were a target for him?
2: Because uh, I grew up in the project. I was, as they say, unemployed and on welfare at the time of the offense. I had children's aid involvement, even though I had voluntarily asked them to come into my life.
3: He thought you were a bad mom. Yeah. It sounds like. It's pretty awful for them to see you through that prism, you know, because it sounds to me like you were doing your best and you loved Kenneth and you were by no means a bad mom. But... You know, they just see that. They see that because of your record or whatever. So it's like you're like things are stacked against you in that courtroom or something. I don't know. How does how does the trial end?
2: When the jury went out to deliberate, I was put in this room and told uh, there just we just got to wait they're de- they're going to deliberate and uh, ask me what I wanted for dinner basically it was like when the food got there so did the verdict and the verdict came back guilty i definitely did not eat that meal <laughs> it just felt like the bottom fell out of my whole world And I was just being swallowed up by the earth. It's like this, this can't be real. It it, it can't be. It's, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I just couldn't make sense of it. Like, I can explain it a million ways from Sunday and nobody seems to listen. Nobody's hearing me and nobody gets it. And everyone just, wants to believe their own thing because this guy they have as a god says this. So because he says this, it must be. No, he didn't make no mistakes.
3: The story gets even worse because Tammy is pregnant at the time with her son, Eric. But she's convicted of second-degree murder. She's sentenced to life in prison, and eventually Eric is taken away from
2: her. Walking in labeled a baby killer is like one of the very bottom feeding type of crimes. Like they're way at the bottom. But somebody had said that uh, it was a good thing that I was pregnant because the suspicions were already going around about what my charge was. and. Basically going in, I had been told if I wanted this baby inside of me to live, I would have to lie about my crime to the other inmates and tell them that I had killed my husband. So I thought, okay, well, this is a staff member telling me, and okay, they're supposed to protect me. They're supposed to help make sure I'm safe. And, you know, that just put a bigger target on my back because now I'm not only labeled a baby killer, but, well, now I'm a liar. My case had come up on TV, and there was one elderly woman. She uh, brought me into her cell, locked her door, and there were there were people banging on her door, yelling at uh, things like, Oh, you're only having that baby, so you can plan on how to kill that one too. Uh... Oh God! Sorry, when I just said that, it just wow. Well... Yeah, there was a yeah. lot of a lot of verbal. In some areas, there was physical. In the long run, the physical I could deal with, it was the mental and the emotional that was the really hard part.
3: But while Tammy is in prison, she learns about something that brings her hope. It's called the Gouge Inquiry. More precisely, the Inquiry into Pediatric Forensic Pathology in Ontario. They're looking into the work of Dr. Charles Smith the very same doctor that said Tammy had murdered Kenneth. Tammy asked the prison librarian to print out the full report, and what she reads there is alarming. Dr. Smith, quote, actively misled his superiors. He made false and misleading statements, and, quote, lacked basic knowledge about forensic pathology. So Tammy appeals, and it works. She's released on bail, and eventually
2: exonerated. I remember uh, the judge apologizing and basically telling me I'm free to go. What was
3: it like for you to finally get that apology, get that vindication?
2: Kind of like um, when you're apologizing for somebody else's behavior you're like, oh, I'm I'm sorry that uh, they did this. It, it's, it just felt like an apology, but it wasn't really an apology. And an apology, although it's kind of like a pat on the back, oh, I'm sorry this happened. And I understand the empathy of it, but it's like, it felt kind of empty. Not from the judge's perspective. Like, I felt like he trueheartedly was sorry that this had happened but for the part around what had actually happened it's like I don't feel like sorry's enough for that I actually had one of my boys say to me that he felt like he was kidnapped he was kidnapped as a baby because of this and it broke my heart when he said that to me It's like that pebble in the pond. The event happens and then you got all these ripples. And, well, these ripples have touched my kids, my sister, her kids, my family, my grandchildren. Like this, in my opinion, this affects generations.
3: So they reached out to you then? Your boys?
2: Yes. Uh, we met almost at the ghost station at uh, Maine and Danforth. And we had set it up, what time he was coming. He was getting off the train. So I told him what I was wearing, what I was doing, what direction to head in. And I just remember this kid started running towards me. And he picked me up. And just swung me around hugged me and I just that was a very exciting day I always knew that my boys would find me one day and I was always I would be here for them no matter what and I wouldn't I wouldn't force my way into their life but They would always know that my door is always open. I'm here whenever you're ready. I'm not going to push myself on you. I can't do that to you.
3: How does the story end with um, Charles Smith? You know, obviously he's, he's disgraced. He had a hearing. A few probably. But did, did you ever see him again? Like, how did that
2: end? No, I never seen him again because he never showed up to any of the hearings at... Um,
3: the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons?
2: That's the one. That's the place. He never showed up. His lawyer always showed up. I think I actually wanted him to see the faces of the people that he's he's truly damaged like that he if it wasn't for him these people wouldn't have gone through this like he caused a lot of a lot of wreckage for a lot of people I wanted him to see my face. I wanted him to to tr- at least feel an ounce of what I've felt. It it would never amount to what I've been through or what I've gone through. It'll never change it'll never really change the the damage that's been done. What would you say to him? Just why? I don't really think I need an answer anymore, but I think I want him to sit with himself and think of why he did this. I want him to ask himself a million times why. How would I feel? if somebody had done this to me.
3: What do you hope will come of telling your story to me and to to other people that might ask?
2: From even just even amongst friends in telling even parts of my story, I've had people come back to me and say, that was inspiring or, well, if you could be that strong, I can do this. And that's what I want to see is I want to see a positive ripple effect. I want the hell that I went through to actually be worth the hell I went through. And if it can help somebody else to whether it's coping with addictions or or anything if it helps somebody then I've done the right thing. This year's a whole new, a um, whole new learning experience, we'll say, because now I think for the first time on my, on, in my life, really, This is the first time I've been on my own where it's my house, I get to make the rules. And I I don't have anybody now telling me, oh, well, you have to live like this. I get to make my own choices. Mm. I like space, I like peace. I prefer animals above people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I love being in nature.
3: That does sound really nice.
2: Almost every day I go for a walk out in the, my back woods. Like, my woods, it it goes right into crown land. Mm-hmm. So I know, like, I'm not going to have any neighbors any too close to me at any time. <laughs> at night, I can look up in the sky and I can see... Uh, more than a million stars it can get so quiet that you can hear your own heart beating you can hear the blood rushing through your veins it is that quiet and, and some people don't like the quiet me i love the quiet
3: That was Tammy Markard. She now goes by Tammy Wynn. She was wrongfully convicted in 1995 for the murder of her son, Kenneth. She was charged with second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. In 2011, the Ontario Court of Appeal formally dismissed Tammy's charges. The province promised up to 250000 Canadian dollars for people that were convicted due to Smith's faulty testimony. Tammy spent 13 years in prison. Throughout the appeals process, her lawyer was James Lockyer. James is founding director of the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, It's now called Innocence Canada. Lockyer was also part of the Gouge Inquiry.
4: What Smith had a habit of doing when there was a dead child at an autopsy, he would uh, make findings that he would ascribe to things like suffocation and strangulation uh, that were not indicative of that at all. And having attributed uh, erroneously these things to... uh, strangulation and or smothering, he would then give an opinion that that was the cause of death. So inevitably uh, uh, the caregiver at the time of the child's death would then be arrested and charged as in Tammy's case with murder. And and Tammy chose to defend herself and um, was convicted by a jury of murder when in fact her child, Kenneth, he he suffered from uh, uh, epilepsy and had died as a result of a seizure. Uh, what is actually known as sudden unexpected death in epilepsy was the ultimate uh, cause of death in his case.
3: So how does Tammy's story begin for you?
4: Well, in 2005, the uh, chief coroner for the province of Ontario uh, set up a uh, committee to uh, investigate all of Charles Smith's cases. I was uh, on the committee. And one of the cases that we looked at was the case of uh, Tammy Markard. And it was apparent that Tammy Markard uh, was uh, one of many victims of uh, Charles Smith. The problem for Tammy was that she'd been in jail for many years by this time. She had lost her appeals back as long ago as 1995. So we had to get Tammy's case back into the court system. I did that uh, by way of uh, taking her case to the Supreme Court of Canada and asking them to refer it back to the Court of Appeal to review as a miscarriage of justice, uh, which the uh, Supreme Court of Canada did in 2009. Two years later, the uh, Court of Appeal quashed her conviction. In 2009, uh, Tammy was released on bail, and by this time, uh, she'd spent uh, 13 plus years in jail.
3: How was it that you and um, the various inquiries discovered um, the problems with Charles Smith? Because one thing that Tammy told me was that Charles Smith was considered a god in the field. How does his status from God to disgraced pathologist happen?
4: Well, it happened pretty slowly because he was at it for, I would think, Close to 20 years. Tammy is quite right. He became an icon, so to called. Uh, The police loved him because he was uh, creating murders, so to speak. They didn't know he was creating them, but that's what he was doing. Crowns uh, loved him because uh, he presented as a good witness. Uh, He always managed to come across as a witness with reasonably presented opinions. Uh, Defense lawyers over the years uh, became, frankly, rather scared of him, as did his colleagues. So, people in his own profession became very nervous of him as well, because they also managed to fall into this belief that he was very good at what he did. So, they were very wary of uh, contradicting his opinions. So, it left the defense in a difficult position of not having an expert to explain. Uh, the problems of his opinions. There were some cases where suspicions were raised, but they were never really followed through. Ultimately, uh, 13 cases where Smith's opinions were wrong, uh, nine of which had led to uh, convictions of uh, innocent people. Tammy was one of them.
3: It's true in these cases that his colleagues weren't willing to question
4: him. They were as deceived and or scared, uh, maybe a bit of both. They were certainly deceived. And I think uh, uh, they were very nervous of taking on uh, someone who uh, was so respected uh, by uh, uh, police and crowns. I mean, if you're working, most of the pathologists that we go to as defense lawyers, if we want to challenge or at least review an autopsy, either work for government or, or are retired from working for government. And uh, so uh, they naturally tend to defer to the opinions of especially someone like Smith who had this uh, extraordinary reputation. It was truly a reputation founded on sand. I mean, it turned out uh, that he he didn't even have uh, proper training in forensic pathology. His training was in the pathology of specimens. So examining specimens taken from someone's body when you're trying to determine a disease that they may be suffering from. For example, uh, if if there's a bone specimen taken from you uh, to see if uh, you have any bone disease, that kind of thing. He did not have training in uh, examining uh, dead bodies. That's a forensic pathologist training. He'd never been trained as a forensic pathologist. Remarkably, he managed to uh, become a, a forensic pathologist in practice with no education as a forensic pathologist at all. Did you have
3: other uh, expert forensic pathologists look at reviewing Tammy's case? What conclusions did they reach?
4: I arranged for other forensic pathologists and a forensic neuropathologist and an expert in epilepsy review the case. They all uh, came to the opinion that uh, Kenneth, Tammy's son, Uh, had died as a result of uh, an epileptic seizure. So
3: why do you think there's this pattern of Dr. Smith getting so many wrong?
4: Some people claim that he must have known that uh, the diagnoses or the opinions that he was giving uh, were false. I can't say that, and I never have said that, uh, because I don't think there's sufficient evidence of that. What I think there's evidence of is a Person who, in my view, uh, uh, enjoyed the limelight, enjoyed the almost adoration that he was getting from police and crowns and judges and indeed his fellow pathologists, and therefore engaged in a form of thinking that led him to want to conclude that baby deaths, particularly because that's what he worked on was baby deaths. A baby death that he was presented with was not natural, but was in fact homicidal. Because if he deemed it homicidal, then uh, it would lead to more of the adulation that he, in my view, uh, so much enjoyed. So he went in with a, a desire, if you will, to see a death as homicidal, and then just justified it by relying on findings that uh, had nothing to do with homicide.
3: What ultimately happens to Smith?
4: Well, we know a little bit of what happened to him. Uh, First of all, he appeared briefly uh, in an Eastern European country. I can't remember which one it was, but I got a feeling it was Lithuania. And then he reappeared in uh, Saskatchewan, in Saskatoon. Media got to hear of it. Uh, And uh, the Saskatchewan uh, Medical uh, Association uh, uh, quickly got rid of him. In the meantime, he was struck off the register of the Ontario uh, Medical Association as well, in disgrace. The last I heard, anyway, is he's now uh, retired and lives in Victoria.
3: I'm curious about Smith's certainty and how that may be present in other forensic scientists and his lack of ability to see some of the structural incentives, but his embeddedness within that system, it seemed like he wasn't able to see it, or maybe he wasn't willing to see it. And on a slightly more sort of abstract sense, I mean, what can we do or what should we do to kind of create a bit more of a culture change so that experts or so-called experts can see a little bit of the bigger picture, uh, see a little bit of the structures that might lead them to make these mistakes and maybe have them question the system overall.
4: The gouge inquiry recommendations have certainly done a lot. At the most basic level, for example, uh, in Ontario, there never was before, but there is now a forensic pathology training course. You have to take it this isn't a few hours uh, that you take it, it's, it's a, a year or more, a course in, in particularly in forensic pathology as its own specialty. Because Smith wasn't the only one back in those days who had never been taught forensic pathology and yet was doing uh, autopsy work. They have a, a much better peer review system, a pathology report in a, a suspicious death case, uh, can't go out without peer review. There's now uh, more systems set up for pathologists who come in with differing opinions in a case for them all to get together, a sort of a round table meeting to try and sort out their differences. Th- those kinds of things are all uh, changes to the good. Uh, I think uh, us lawyers who uh, get caught up in these cases, be, be prosecutors or defense, are far more aware, uh, hopefully, We've all read the gouge inquiry and uh, are aware of the pitfalls in these kinds of cases. As well, uh, police training is much more profound for homicide investigators, particularly uh, when it comes to to looking at particularly child cases, but other cases too. And then finally, um, I mean, one of the things that Innocence Canada is engaged in is looking for cases where people may have been convicted as a result of bad pathology. I haven't counted them as such, but as I sit here, I think there's 13 or 14 cases that we've exposed as wrongful convictions as a result of bad pathology, mostly in Ontario, but in other provinces as well.
3: Was there any sort of uh, apology or contrition or or anything from Dr. Smith?
4: It's hard to say. Um, he testified at the uh, gouge inquiry, the, the inquiry into uh, Charles Smith's uh, activities as a so-called forensic pediatric pathologist. Uh, He apologized numerous times in a rather vague way of he was very sorry if if his diagnoses were wrong. But then, as if to show that he wasn't really sorry, Smith didn't have the grace to uh, show up uh, before the discipline committee when uh, his ticket was taken away. How sorry was he? I don't know. You'd have to try and find him and ask him. I got a funny feeling he wouldn't talk to you.
3: That was Tammy Wynn's lawyer, James Lockyer. Lockyer was also part of the Gouge Inquiry, which looked into the work of Dr. Charles Smith. Charles Smith was banned from holding a license in February 2011. He could not be reached for comment. Charles Smith is just one doctor a disgraced forensic pathologist who didn't even really have the formal qualifications. So, bad apple. Or might the whole barrel be rotten? How good is forensic pediatric pathology as a field? Well, hot off the presses, the latest issue of the Journal of Forensic Science has a troubling new article. It's called Cognitive Bias in Forensic Pathology Decisions. The paper claims to be the very first study to look at cognitive biases in forensic pathology. And its lead author is Dr. Ichil Dror, a cognitive neuroscientist at the University College
5: London. When I began, I was naive, like most people, believing that experts, scientists, are immune to those biases and find out that experts are not only not immune, in many ways they're even more susceptible to biases and they don't know about it. So they get quite offended when I show them and explain it because I'm talking about hardworking, dedicated, motivated experts who are not aware how the biases actually impact them.
3: That is fascinating. That's like such an interesting paradox uh, that comes through in your work. It seems like to know more actually makes you more prone to uh, not seeing your biases? Is that, if I understand it correctly, a sort of biased blind spot?
5: Not only the bias blind spot of not seeing your biases, but to being more biased. So it's not only that you don't see it, but the actual biases increase. And it's almost a, a paradox. I have a paper called The Paradox of Expert Performance, so in a way, the more you expert, the more knowledge, the more expectation, the more experience you bring on. So when you have a new case, you don't see it for what it is, right? Ignorance is bliss. You know the story of the emperor's new clothes. It's only the child that is able to see the truth because they're not limited by their knowledge and expectations. So experts are very good. They make excellent decisions, very high quality decisions, very quickly. But sometimes their knowledge actually interferes and causes the bias. And the bias blind spot, they're not aware of it, is the icing on top of the cake. That's a knowledge, a metacognitive issue.
3: That's fascinating. I'm curious how much of this is cognitive versus a kind of cultural. The matter in which we put experts on pedestals, if we didn't call them experts, if they weren't assured of their expertise, do you think they might be able to be a bit more
5: uh, circumspect about their own abilities? The fact that we put them on a pedestal, if we didn't, would it make them more modest and more careful? Perhaps, but I think the level of modesty or self-awareness or what we call metacognitive depends on their experience. Now, different experts have it at different levels. The forensic examiners are a big problem. Why? Because most experts, they're modest because they know even if they're put on a pedestal and they make a lot of money and they're in high demand, they know they make mistakes. You know, the medical doctor knows she makes mistakes from time to time. My banker advises me what stocks to buy. A week later, she and I open and look at the stock market and she doesn't always get it right. Sometimes she says buy something and it goes down. The forensic experts are a different in that domain from the other experts, because if and when they make mistakes, they don't know about it as often because they make a match, a fingerprint, or say that a child died as a result of homicide and not an accident. The police investigates, they find a suspect, and the person goes to jail. We never know the ground truth. And often the forensic evidence is not even questioned in court because once you have a forensic expert saying, you know, their conclusion, it's plea bargained in the United States and many countries. You know, plea bargained is very common. It's over 90, 95 percent of the cases are plea bargained. So the expert opinion for the prosecution is not questioned in court. And the public loves them because they watch too much CSI on TV or believe that's a reality.
3: So Tell me a bit more about the study, you have a, quite a large data set. You're looking at 10 years of death certificates for black children and white children, as well as studying 133
5: forensic pathologists. What what did you find? With uh, forensic pathologists, we did two things. First of all, we did an experiment where 133 got information about the child that arrived into the hospital and died a short time later, and they got, you know, medical information. In addition to the medical information, we manipulated irrelevant contextual information that shouldn't change whether the child died from an accident or its homicide. And the two uh, things that we manipulated, we seen irrelevant contextual information, one with the race of the child, one time the child was white, one time the child was black, and also manipulated who brought him to the hospital. So the black child was brought to the hospital by the mother's boyfriend, and the white child was brought to the hospital by the grandmother. And we got a huge effect where the child was white and brought to the hospital by the grandmother They basically said, Yes, it's an accident, but when the child was black and brought to the hospital by the mother's boyfriend, they said, no, this is the homicide, basically speaking. And, you know, the listeners can go and uh, read the article. It's open access. Anybody can freely uh, access and read the details. Now, this study is only one data set because it's a study, it's a survey, it's not a real case, right? It's an experiment. It's still very insightful and important. So we we looked at actual cases. We looked at over a thousand death certificates of children under the age of five and just look at a race looking whether black children and white children, how many death certificates are showing that they died from accident and how many show that they died from homicide. And the black children were more likely relative to the white children to have a manner of death which was homicide, while the white kids relative to the, white, uh, to the black children were more likely to have it as an accident. Now, as we explain in the paper, we have to be careful in the interpretation of the death certificates, because it could be that black children are murdered more than white kids, and white kids die more from accident and less from murder. It could be for a whole range of socioeconomical reasons. But as we say in the paper, this is a big problem in terms of what we call base rate bias. So imagine this is what it was 10 years ago or now, but things change. And now or in the future, black kids are not murdered more than white kids. However, the pathologists, the medical examiners get used to having a base rate, a statistical general number that black kids are more often going to die from homicide relative to white kids. And even if it changes, it perpetuates. We call it by cascade and the bias snowball effect. The same thing with police officers, right? They go to police officers and say, why do you stop black people more than white people? He said, well, black people have more guns and knives and drugs than white people. So how do you know it? He said, so well, look at how many of them are convicted. Look at the jail. We convict many more black people for drugs and knives and guns and white people. That's why I stop them all. But then because you stop them all, they're more convicted. So it's perpetuate and feeds itself almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more you stop them, black men, the more you convict them. The more you convict them, the more it justifies the base rate bias. So these two data sets of actual birth, uh, death certificates over a 1,000 and the experiment together raise very serious concerns what information is used in determining the manner of death. In the experiment, we give them a case. We give them information about a case. We say, here is the case, here the, uh, the injuries, here is what uh, they found here. Now you need to decide what needs to be done. And the case information actually doesn't include sufficient information to make a decision about the manner of this. And indeed, many of them say undetermined. They don't have to decide. They can decide homicide. They can decide suicide. They can decide uh, accident or natural or undetermined. And a bit over 50%, 58% decide undetermined. But the remaining of them, where they could have decided undetermined, make a conclusive decision on the manner of death, of homicide or accident, and we see that the irrelevant contextual information, who brought the child to the hospital, or and the race of the child causes them to determine homicide or accident in a systematic way. When it's white, grandmother, it's an accident. When it's black, the mother's boyfriend, it's homicide. Quite
3: a bit more too, just to put some numbers on it. I'm looking at your, the, in the black condition, the pathologists were about five times more likely to rule the death as a homicide rather than an accident. 35.4% versus um,
5: 6.2%. What do you make of those numbers? First of all, before I make of those numbers, what is mind-boggling, this is the first study ever to examine it. So there's no data, you know, they have been going, to, you know, the coroner, the medical examiner, the forensic personalities, they have been determining manner of death, you know, for decades. And there was no data to collect on that. Now, no accidents They have no data. They don't want data collected on that. I approached them five years ago. I wanted to collect data. I don't want to say it's too rude to say here what they told me, but there's total blocking Access to the experts uh, to do experiment and research on that. Even the death certificate, people have not looked. This is the first data set, two data sets on this. This by itself is mind boggling that no one has collected uh, data on this. Now, it's the first two experiments. So, of course, like every study, and especially the first study, there are limitations, There are alternative explanations. We need to do more research. And the way research generally goes, for every answer we get in research, we get two new questions, right? But even this data, this study is very strong because it has two data sets which are very different. One is 133 experts seeing the same case but different contextual information. And the death certificate over a thousand, uh, so it's mind-boggling, just very disturbing, because this is not, you know, some theoretical uh, construct. This is things that happen in court all the time about shaken babies and accidents, and people go to jail, and uh, which may who may be innocent, maybe people who are guilty they go free, and this needs to be studied. And there needs to be a professional debate on this issue, and there have not been one. Generally speaking, the forensic pathology community has been extremely resistant. They haven't wanted to hear about it. And hopefully now with this study, after the initial shock and resistance, things will be more open to discuss it. So what's the solution here? First of all, I want transparency. So we know what is decided so for example in our experiment some of the forensic pathologists are claiming that who brought the baby to the hospital should be taken into account because the mother's boyfriend is more likely to kill the child than the grandmother now it is true statistically that a mother's boyfriend is more likely to kill the child than the grandparent but they fall in what is called the ecological fallacy we're not asking if a mother's boyfriend is more likely. We're asking this specific baby. Was this baby killed, murdered by the mother's boyfriend? This is, you cannot draw conclusion on this case from the general statistics. But if they want to do it, and we think it's wrong, it's called an ecological fallacy. People can uh, Google it. But at least we want transparency. So if the forensic pathology said, in this case, I determine homicide, not accident, only because of that. All else being equal, if it was a grandmother, I would say it's an accident. We totally agree, disagree with this thinking. We think it's totally biased and wrong, but at least we want transparency. We want the forensic pathologist, the medical examiner to be transparent. So at least we can debate it. We can argue about it. We know where it comes from. So this is the very minimum we're calling for. B, certain information should not be used and should be masked. Some things are hard to mask, right? When you're doing an autopsy, you're going to see the race of the child. However, who brought the child to the hospital is something very easy not to know, right? You have to go out of your way to say to the pathologist, oh, this baby was brought to the hospital by the mother's boyfriend or something like that. It introduces biases.
3: I wonder if there's a bit of kind of the narrow specialization that leads to a kind of stubbornness or pig-headedness of these so-called experts. And maybe the issue here is that we need to shift a little bit away from expertise and be kind of broader intellectuals, for lack of a better word. Because if these people were not just focusing on their expert tasks as forensic pathologists, but were reading the neuroscientific literature, like your yourself, your, your literature, or if they were reading literature and structural racism and the criminal justice system and how it perpetuates these inequalities, or even more broadly, if they study the history and philosophy of science and they understood the fallibility and how these paradigms can lead us astray, they might be a little bit more circumspect about what they do as experts. And they may start to even And to question their own expertise or the way that expertise is socially constructed and and informs their own cognitive sort of
5: apparatus. Yes, absolutely. This is very, very much needed uh, in every domain, not only for forensic pathologies, a broader intellectual uh, view and the way things are going, we get more and more Specialized more and more narrow in a very sub sub without losing the philosophy of science and the social issues and stereotypes and really understanding it, and on top of that, you have to understand that many of the forensic examiners see themselves as part of the police and helping the police. And if you want to be a police detective, that's great. But if you're a scientist, you need to be a scientist as much as possible. And that's why I totally agree with you. And the scientists need to have a broader view of understanding in any science, not only in forensic pathology and forensic science, need to take courses in philosophy or philosophy of science and sociology and anthropology and have a broader view. This is part of supposedly the liberal arts education that uh, you have in the United States in a college. But definitely they need that. All they need continuous professional development on those issues. So medical doctors, for example, are required every year to take certain credits. Also lawyers. So, for example, I, I train lawyers in different countries. they require to take 12 credits a year, and two of them have to be on ethics. So they're not only about studying the law. They have to take two of the 12 credits a year on wider ethical issues. And the same, uh, perhaps, would be very important for not only in the initial training, but for all the forensic pathologists to have to have some training on cognitive bias, and not only in terms of their decisions, but also in terms, you know, there aren't a lot of minorities who are forensic pathologists. Uh, there are very, very few of them. So there are no topic of bias is also about diversity in the workplace among the pathologists and not only the pathologists. So I think this uh, we need to include that as part of the basic education of every scientist. So absolutely, I totally embrace you. And part of the reason I embrace what you say, not only because I think you're right, but because I'm biased, because I started in philosophy And I have an undergraduate and a graduate degree in philosophy to understand the human mind and the bigger picture of the human mind and free will and determinism and all those big questions are always my interest in the background when I do the specific stuff. You know, the trees and the branches, I see the forest and the woods, and I think every human being needs that, and especially scientists.
3: That was Dr. Ikhil Dror, Senior Cognitive Neuroscientist at University College London. Check out his research on our show page. All the papers we link there are open access. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our assistant producer is Polly Legier, And our Chase producer is Mark Apollonio. Our lead research assistant on this episode was Roland Nadler. We also had academic advising from Professor Emma Cunliffe. Nadler and Cunliffe are both at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. As always, our research coordinator is David Mosscrop. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber, our graphic designer is Dakota Coop, and I'm your host, Gordon Kadic. You can send us your feedback by emailing the show. The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media. Our programming is supported by academic research grants. In particular, this is part of a mini-series on the state of forensic science. It is supported by funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and the scholarly lead on that grant is Professor Emma Cunliffe. We are also supported by a generous patrons, people like Janice, Hart, Sean, and others, Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters.